Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's a certain genre of disaster film that explores the paranoia and fear of nuclear energy. Oh my God, kid. Is that pump? This is a scene from a film called The China Syndrome. We're at a nuclear power plant in California. Suddenly, something begins to tremble. Panic spreads through the plant. What if the pump can't be fixed? What if there's a nuclear meltdown? When the film was released in 1979, nuclear power was in its golden age. More than 200 reactors were under construction around the world. But the film, and many others like it, was already a sign that the public mood was turning against nuclear power. In the decades that followed, nuclear power never quite achieved its potential. But it didn't die either. And now, with a looming climate crisis, and more acutely, a war in Europe that's squeezing the world's energy supplies, could nuclear power surge again? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. We've spoken many times before on this podcast, not least last week, about how the world needs lots of new, low-carbon ways to generate electricity. That usually means wind, solar and other renewable sources. But today we'll explore the original low-carbon energy, nuclear fission. How much can existing nuclear technology fulfil the twin goals of energy security and tackling the climate crisis? And we'll also look at the very latest technology that aims to propel nuclear power into the 21st century. New, cheaper, smaller reactors that could be quicker and easier to build in very large numbers. Nuclear power is a way of generating electricity through a a process known as nuclear fission, which basically means splitting atoms. Hal Hodson is The Economist technology correspondent. When an atom gets split, the energy that gets released from that is enough to basically supply some heat. And when you split loads and loads of atoms in what's called a chain reaction, the heat that gets released can be extremely dramatic. And a nuclear power plant is a great big fission reaction that sits underneath a tank of water 
boils that tank of water, turns it into steam, and pushes that steam through a turbine, which generates electricity. So it's a giant nuclear reaction driving a steam turbine to generate electricity and feed it into the grid. The reason that nuclear power sort of initially seemed so promising is that the fuel requirements for nuclear power are much smaller than, for instance, a coal power plant or a gas power plant. And crucially, for sort of the current era and the problems that the world faces, nuclear power doesn't emit any carbon during its lifetime of operation. Now, the first commercial nuclear power plants were made in Britain in the mid-1950s. As Calder Hall began to deliver electricity to Britain's power grid in October 1956, History was made. The opening of the world's first full-scale atomic power station heralded the beginning of a new age. And back then, there was a huge amount of optimism that this would be the way that electricity would be generated for everyone in the future. I, I think some people said that it would generate electricity in such a way that it would be too cheap to meter. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Why hasn't nuclear power lived up to those expectations? There's a lot of reasons, and it's a long, complex history. But the starting point is that building nuclear power plants is difficult. It's very complex to build them safely. Nuclear reactions are inherently unstable. They're, they're in a state of unstable equilibrium. They're kind of like trying to balance a pencil and keep it balanced the whole time. It's not something that naturally happens. You have to constantly do a lot of work to make sure that the reaction keeps going, but doesn't melt down, doesn't go too much and become too hot and sort of explode out of your nuclear power plant and cause a nuclear disaster. So to build a safe structure around the nuclear reaction in order to contain it and pipe its energy into the turbines and get the electricity is an expensive, difficult, slow process. So these reactors are hard to build and keep safe. But then obviously one of the other reasons that um, people more probably know about, about why nuclear power hasn't come along so far, is the potential for accidents, isn't it? Because obviously nuclear power stations have to be kept safe, but if, if they do go wrong, that's disastrous. Yeah, in a way, it was the aesthetics around nuclear power, the attitude toward it, the public perception of it, that really changed what was possible and how easy it was to build plants. And the nuclear disaster that people have probably heard of is the meltdown of Chernobyl in Ukraine in 1986. There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged. And there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. That was a very serious nuclear accident. People died. Lots of people had to be evacuated from the surrounding area. Radiation was released. And radiation in Ukraine is still monitored to this day as a result of that. Uh, but the accident that really turned the tide was in 1979 in Pennsylvania at Three Mile Island nuclear power plant. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. As far as we know at this hour, no worse than that. But a nuclear safety group said that radiation inside the plant is at eight times the deadly level, so strong that after passing through a three-foot-thick concrete wall, it can be measured a mile away. This is a much less serious accident. It didn't cause loss of life, and it didn't cause serious meltdown, but it, they had to stop the plant. But just the fear of meltdown, the, the prospect of it, became mimetic across America and across the Western world. No! 
And it's that fear that did then go on to stand in the way of continued construction of big nuclear power plants in the West from that point on. And of course, it's worth mentioning one more of the sort of big worrying nuclear accidents, which was Fukushima in 2011, after the tsunami um, in the Pacific Ocean, which led to a nuclear meltdown there. And that's had some really lasting effects too. Just tell us a bit about that accident and the the impact of it in terms of the, the politics of nuclear power afterwards. Yeah, so perhaps the most globally important impact of Fukushima is that China paused its nuclear power build out. If you look at the graph of nuclear power plant output in China. It's going up and up and up. And then 2012, it drops and then it stays flat for several years. And the world would be a very, very different place if China had kept building. And 10 years later, we'd have a huge amount more nuclear capacity in China. But it's not just China. It's also perhaps second most importantly, and currently very importantly, Germany. Germany saw what happened in Fukushima and said it wanted to get off nuclear power. And if it had made different choices, the Ukraine crisis would have a very different sort of timbre to it. Because the current problem with Ukraine is that the most powerful country in Europe, Germany, is absolutely addicted to Russian oil and gas. And if they had a much stronger nuclear power base, those decisions would be different. It wouldn't completely solve it, but it would make everything very different. There's twin crises at the moment. There's the acute one of the war in Ukraine causing problems for European energy. And then, of course, the climate crisis, which is a much more long-term problem, where we need to try and decarbonise as much of the industrial sector as possible, including energy. It seems as if nuclear power should be the perfect solution to both those things. Given all of the problems you've outlined already, do you see nuclear power stepping into the breach? Yeah, so I'm working on a briefing at the moment to try and answer this question Nuclear certainly looks very attractive. Despite all of the paranoia, for example, nuclear power has killed just insanely fewer people than other fossil fuels. And coal and even gas kills just vastly more people. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world have died as a result of coal power. They've just died in a sort of not very dramatic way because they've had respiratory disease as a result of particulate pollution from burning coal. And no one cares. And in in consequence, very few people relatively have died because of nuclear power. And everyone cares. And so my view where I've come down so far with my reporting is that nuclear power is an option that the world really can't afford to take off the table by stopping pursuing it. We know that the only way to make nuclear power affordable is by building it. And yeah, they're expensive right now. But there are things that you can do to bring the cost down. And to not pursue that... I think would be madness because all of the other options for decarbonization, they're completely uncertain in their own ways as well. The idea that you could build out just wind and solar and batteries, we don't know how to do that. We've never done that. But what one thing we have done, even though it's expensive and it has its problems, is build lots of big nuclear power plants. And so I think it is a very sensible option to have as baseline power, but also as a possibility to expand depending on how the build out of the clean energy system goes goes over the next couple of decades. Okay, Hal, let's talk about the science behind nuclear power. You've talked a little bit about theoretically how they work, but you know, as an industrial machine, how does a nuclear reactor actually function? And do they all work in the same way? 
Yeah, so we've had a little sense of what the reaction is. And essentially, a nuclear power plant is a machine that contains the nuclear reaction, makes it safe, keeps it going, and funnels the heat that it produces into steam that can generate electricity in a turbine. That's the point of a nuclear power plant. That's how the machine works. There are lots of different designs for them. For example, the design of the plant at Chernobyl is very, very different to the designs of the plants that are being built today. There are many more safety precautions and most importantly, what's known as passive safety in modern reactors. And broadly, what this means is that if they lose all power, the reaction isn't going to run away because they have things like basically giant vats of water sitting above the reactors at all times so that if the power goes out, they can cool the rods, they can, they can stop the reaction. And there's myriad designs of this kind. Well, let's talk specifics. You've been looking into one of the more modern styles of reactors um, here in Britain. I have, I have. On a rainy, damp day, our producer Jason and I took a walk around Hinkley Point C, which is the first nuclear power plant under construction in Britain in about 20 years. It's also one of Europe's largest construction projects. It's run by the French energy giant EDF. And the problem with really big plants like Hinkley is that they're bespoke and they're expensive. Hinkley costs in the realm of £23 billion. But the hope is that Hinkley is finding some ways to bring down the costs of making nuclear power plants and to kind of make it possible to have a production machine, a machine that builds nuclear power plants that can spin up and build a lot of them, not just in the UK, but all over the world. The site at Hinkley, it's right on the sea. It needs the, the sea to be there so that it can pump water and to cool the reactor. It's this maze of concrete with builders everywhere. Everything is connected by gantries. This is a factory that just happens to be outdoors and it's making one of the most complex objects on the planet. And we've got some reinforcement coming through. When it's finished, Hinkley is going to be two completely identical reactors that together are going to be able to supply about 7% of Britain's electricity needs. The plan is for it to open in 2026 and if everything goes well, it will generate electricity for the next 60 years. The technology at Hinkley is what's known as EPR. Uh, that stands for European Pressure Reactor. That means just what we've been talking about. Water gets pumped under high pressure to the reactor core, where it's heated by the energy generated by the, the splitting of the atoms. And then that heated water, which becomes steam, whizzes off to a different part of the plant to spin turbines and generate electricity. Hinkley is itself actually part of a family of EPRs. There's one in Taishan in China that is up and running. And there's one in Finland and another in France that are both under construction. The Finnish one is just in the process of switching on. And when you hear people say nuclear power is expensive and it just can't work, they're thinking about Finland and France, those plants, because they have been running behind schedule by almost a decade. But the hope is that EPRs can be built in a different way. And walking around Hinkley, where they've learned to do things differently from Finland and France, you get some sense that that might be possible. And just to get a little nuclear for a minute, that's where the reactor vessel will go, that will yeah. have the fuel, that will have the fission reaction, right in there. Yes. 
We were given a tour of this open air factory site by a woman named Sarah Williamson. I won't talk in case you fall down the stairs. Yeah, let's get somewhere soon. Sarah is overseeing this gigantic civil engineering construction effort for Bylaw, which is a joint venture between a French construction firm and a British one. Hinkley is about halfway finished, but when you walk around, it's a little hard to sort of see a working nuclear power plant just yet. Heat sink in front of us, cooling water comes in. You kind of have to be pointed out that this lump of concrete means this and, you know, here is where all of this stuff will go. That top level there is what the generator will sit on and then you've got the reactor behind you so you get... When you first step in, it feels like any construction site. You've got steel-toed boots, hard hats, lots of blokes walking around. But what you realise, especially when you talk to Sarah, is that every single step of the build is incredibly carefully choreographed. It's this ridiculous dance of efficiency in order to attempt to get this thing built on time. I was trying to explain why, why is this different to another big project? It's, it's just this, this space that we manage in here. Even the concrete is a very specific sort of concrete designed for nuclear safety, for its capacity to stop radiation, essentially. All the concrete yeah. here is fancy. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it, it, is, it is all scientifically controlled, controlled to within an inch of its life concrete. The, the aggregate there, that'll have been tested coming out of the quarry, it'll have been tested arriving at the site. The, the actual batch implant is computer controlled, so all the water content's measured, it's measured before it goes in, it's on its way Why? in. Why does it need to be so good? Well, you know, we, we talk about a thing called nuclear safety. Nuclear safety is actually, we need to get the quality exactly right so that when this is an operating plant, everything performs exactly as, as it's intended. So the concrete has multiple functions. It, it, does, it does structural work, it does work to protect things that have got radioactive fuel inside them. So it's got to be absolutely right. Unlike most normal buildings, Hinkley is designed to withstand some pretty unusual threats. The bit of reinforcement that we're looking at now, it's called the aircraft protection shell. This shell is designed to protect the reactor from external strikes, and it's this gigantic wall of concrete and steel. I mean, you think you've seen a lot of concrete and steel, and then you go to Hinkley C and you, you realise that you haven't seen a lot of concrete and steel, and that really there's a whole other scale that's possible. Overall, there's over a million cubic metres of concrete on the job. <laughs> the main thing I found fascinating about walking around Hinkley is not the nuclear power plant itself. What's interesting is the, the machine that's made of people and paper making Hinkley, because we don't just need nuclear power plants. The world needs to make nuclear power plants. That's the capacity that's required, is making them, lots of them, as fast as possible and as cheap as possible. One way of thinking about what they're doing is that everything that happens at Hinkley, the EDF team want to be able to pretty much replicate at the next nuclear power plant. And when you talk to Sarah about it, she talks about copy and paste manufacturing. Just they want everything to be as similar as possible so that the build is the same. I used to say that we build it like Lego. We build it like Lego and these are massive Lego And I was Lego always crap at Lego. I couldn't follow the instructions, <laughs> but, you know. And in order to sort of hone this, Sarah calls it the design machine. She's travelled the whole world to see the EPR reactors that are under construction right now. She's been to Oculoto in Finland, to Flamanville in France, to Taishan in China, and learned from it to try and bring 
the failings of those places to bear at Hinckley so that they can be avoided. At Flamanville, one of the problems was that the metal case that goes around the reactor, it was welded just in the open air out of plates of metal on site. And then when there was really bad weather, it meant that the welders were like working in water up to their waists and work would have to stop. The welding was shoddy. And so at Hinkley, they decided to do all of this indoors. And as part of the construction site, they built prefabricated structures and they built all of these reactor casings in there. They welded them all inside. These two structures that look like the old gasometers, yeah. they're actually temporary structures. They're the things that are protecting from the wind and the rain for exactly, the welding, right? Exactly. And then they used a gigantic crane to lift the fully finished part in place into the reactor. We're walking past the biggest crane in the world. It is pretty massive. And the weird thing about this crane isn't just that it's so huge, it's that it has to lift such weird things. It has to lift the gigantic flat metal liner cup that goes inside the containment vessel of a nuclear reactor. What we're doing here is we're creating these elements up to a thousand tonnes, we're creating them in a controlled way, they're offline. When the structure's ready to receive them, in one shift they'll be lifted in and you'll make months progress. And there's lots of other standard sort of techie stuff going on on site too. All of the welders have these iPads that have 3D models of exactly where the steel rebar they're installing in the reactor core needs to go. These are the people who actually do the staircase. The I can give you the tablet as well. The staircase is there, this one, with the model. Yeah. Yeah? This is what I'm doing, yeah? And so they're working to this model that's yeah. just right with them all the time, and so that kind of speeds things up. Yeah, fabulous. Mm. Object info, and tell you about everything the bar. The grip tape oh, is, is, uh, this, is this your first okay. uh, nuclear, first, job, first, first reactor? Job, first job with the tablet. First job with the tablet, okay. Yes. Okay, but not your first. does it work for you? Does it work yes. for you? It does work for you? Yes, it's very handful. Okay. It's very handy. Excellent. iPads in the workplace are not a particularly big deal, but for construction, which is one of the most conservative industries on earth, this is quite a big change. So we've just walked from the nuclear island past the conventional island to the heat sink. We're running out of time, you've probably got enough steps in. After we'd walked around Hinkley and seen everything, I sat down with Sarah to talk about what the impacts are of these new ways of working. So what do you want to talk to me about? Sarah describes the whole project as a learning experience. Even the successes of the construction of the first reactor, which is called Unit 1, are being applied to speed up the creation of the second reactor unit. The whole thing is supposed to be modular and repeatable. There's you know, good progress on Unit 1, Unit 2 is following, Unit 2 is learning from Unit 1. How do the next units learn from 1 and 2 is by, is by being here. We talk about replication and, and it's a bit of a funny word really. What does it really mean? What we're really going to do is build the same design. So we take the design from Hinkley and we'll build it at Sizewell. Sarah's not thinking about Hinkley so much anymore. She's already thinking about Britain's next power plant, Sizewell C, on the country's east coast in Suffolk. And Sarah's copy and paste approach is so imbued that she just naturally talks about Sizewell C as units three and four of Hinkley, meaning that she just sees the whole thing as a continuation of running that same construction machine, that same design machine. So the planning and preparation for Sizewell is really duplicating what happened here 10, 15 years ago, engaging the local community, planning to put the infrastructure in. 
EDF says that the build on the second reactor is going 20 to 30% faster than the build on the first one did. And that time saved inevitably reduces the price tag of the nuclear power plant. Because if you can build your nuclear power plant on time, the money you save isn't money that is saved on paying construction people. It is money saved on financing. It makes your interest costs lower overall. EDF's hope and Sarah's hope is that all of this standardization, all of these new construction methods might give nuclear power plants really their last shot to play a big, important role in generating electricity that is carbon-free and reliable, that can help the world wean itself off fossil fuels. Hal, listening to that tour of Hinkley, it seems amazing, doesn't it, that nuclear power plant design hasn't been standardised in the way that you describe is going on at Hinkley. Why is that the case, especially given the cost savings, potentially? It's a good question. And to be clear, not every single thing that's happening in Hinkley is, is brand new. But some of these techniques, they're new in construction overall. And it's really down to the fact that construction is a conservative industry. And construction of nuclear power plants is a conservative niche within a conservative industry. And so while a lot of what we described and saw, you know, it's not that revolutionary, it seems very sensible, right, that you'd make your parts in a modular way and you try and decouple the, the risk of, you know, delaying things in one part of the operation by making as much as you can in a different part. But it hasn't happened before, kind of because nuclear power plants are so big and so expensive. And so there just tends to be a new approach every time. Do you think that the lessons from Hinkley C can make a difference in trying to build more plants across the world? I think that they can. We're not going to see the cost of nuclear power plants dive and become very, very low, like we have for wind and solar power. But even if you can reduce the cost a little bit, if you can make financing a little bit easier, if you can build a couple of plants in a row, even just in the UK, that would demonstrate to financiers that this is a legitimate option. And the need to decarbonize is so urgent that I think it kind of lights a fire under nuclear to make it, you know, you've really got to give it a shot and attempt to make this work. Hal, for now, thank you very much. While the innovations at Hinkley Point C should make construction easier, the nuclear reactors within the power plant will be fairly traditional ones. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Tim Cross, The Economist's technology editor, about new designs for reactors that could give the nuclear industry a whole new lease of life. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On today's show, we've explored the history and future of the traditional pressurised water nuclear reactors. But it turns out that that's not the only way to harness nuclear energy. 
Here to tell me about some of the other ways to make electricity by splitting atoms is Tim Cross, The Economist technology editor. He's been reporting on the companies trying to build an entirely new nuclear industry. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Alec. Tim, can you start by giving me an overview of what you think the problems are with uh, what we call traditional nuclear fission reactors? I think one of the problems that's held them up, particularly in the West, is just their size and therefore their cost. These things cost billions or sometimes tens of billions of dollars each. There are very few private companies that can put that kind of massive capital there up front and then have it just sort of sitting there while the actual nuclear reactor gets built, which can take 10 years or more before you're earning any kind of a return. So their size may be good for a kind of future electricity grid where we're powering transport with electricity and home heating and so on. But it does make it a little bit hard to actually get these things built. So you've been reporting on a newer, potentially more scalable type of nuclear reactor. So tell me what small modular reactors are. Well, the clues in the name, really, the sort of two distinguishing features are one that that you make a deliberate design decision to go much, much smaller than a sort of conventional nuclear power station. To the extent that there's an official definition, it's reactors smaller than about 300 megawatts of electricity. And then the other thing you try and do, because they're small, you don't necessarily have to build as much of them on a construction site in the middle of a field. You can do more work in a factory somewhere. And then, you know, since you don't have to worry about the weather, since you can optimise the sort of production process, since you've got the same workforce there day in, day out, the hope is that you can turn them out quickly and more cheaply per megawatt. So you solve this problem whereby existing plants take a long time and an awful lot of money before they start generating. You have something that you can build quicker and deploy faster. All of that sounds really excellent in principle. And I wonder, are these just older style reactors shrunk down in size or are there technological differences too that um, allow them to be made smaller or cheaper and potentially more scalable? It depends which ones you look at, basically. So here in the UK, the government's very keen on a design from Rolls-Royce, which kind of is a sort of standard nuclear power plant shrunk down. And when I was speaking to Rolls-Royce, they said their limiting factor was we want to be able to get every single component of this thing onto a lorry. So it actually produces well over 450 megawatts. So it wouldn't quite sort of squeak into the, the official definition, but they still call it an SMR. And it's a light water reactor, which is the same sort of general species of nuclear reactor as most of the power plants out there. So it has pumps to circulate coolant through the core and then backups for the pumps in case something goes wrong. And it really is just kind of a big reactor and shrink it down. There are other companies, though, that take advantage of of the smallness to to tinker with the design. So one that's quite well known is an American one called NuScale. Their reactors are much smaller than Rolls-Royce's, so about 77 megawatts each. And because they're so small, you can do away with a lot of the extra equipment. So they don't have cooling pumps. Instead, the water inside the core just circulates naturally via convection. And they've designed them in such a way that the actual reactor itself sits below ground level in a big artificial pond of water of its own. So if something were to go wrong with this cooling system, then NuScale reckoned that the heat produced by even an uncontrolled reaction wouldn't be enough to boil off all the water. And so you could basically leave the thing where it is and it would just eventually stop producing power without any kind of human intervention required. So in a way, it's much less likely that something like that would suffer any sort of meltdown and it's passively safe, essentially. Exactly. Passively safe is very much the, the buzzword. And we should say it isn't just new scale that, that have this as a feature. Lots of the SMRs take advantage of their small size and the relatively low amounts of power to build in these kind of passively safe features. 
Tell me about some of the other sort of designs that are out there then. So you've got the Rolls-Royce one, which is a shrunken standard reactor. The new scale one is, as you say, a sort of a passively safe underground thing. I mean, what other ones are contenders for the market out there? Well, there are all kinds of designs. Uh, The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Authority, reckons there's about 50 at various stages of design. And some of them are, are kind of more exotic. So there's a couple of companies, um, an American one called X-Energy and a, a British one called U-Battery, that are working on something called high-temperature gas reactors. They're designed to run much hotter than a standard nuclear reactor, and they use helium instead of liquid water as a coolant. And the idea with that is it's not just electricity that's useful, just just producing heat can be useful as well. There's all kinds of, of industrial processes like cement making or glass making or steel foundries that just require a lot of heat. And at the moment, they get that by burning fossil fuels because it tends to be much cheaper than using electricity. And the idea here is you have a nuclear reactor that provides heat instead of electricity or as well as electricity. And so the coolant comes out at about 700 degrees and you can use this directly in an industrial process, which is definitely interesting. I I guess the, the slight downside to that design is that you know, a little bit more work is required to kind of certify them. And it's perhaps a little bit harder to know exactly how they'll behave in practice. I mean, the idea of having smaller nuclear reactors, lots of them built in factories, all of it sounds great and positive. I mean, what are the downsides here? This latest rush of people trying to make SMRs is not the first time it's happened. We've had ideas for these things in the 1960s, haven't we? I think the fundamental problem that they're going to have to overcome is kind of one of scale. So the reason that that conventional nuclear power plants are so big is that it's capital efficient. You know, each extra megawatt costs you a lot less than $1, if you see what I mean. The power rises faster than the costs do. And that means that all other things being equal, the bigger your plant is, the cheaper it's going to be. The kind of open question is whether this idea of building these things in factories and applying sort of mass production techniques to them, whether that can be enough to overcome that sort of inherent disadvantage that they start with. And I think, you know, really the only way we're ever going to know is to build a bunch of these and see if it works. But I think you'd be right to say that the history of nuclear power up until this point suggests maybe we should be a little bit cautious. Do we know how much these SMRs might cost? Predicting the cost of a nuclear power station, even if you know what the design is and know it works, is always difficult. So this might be a bit of a finger in the air sort of calculation. But relatively speaking, how much is a a new scale unit or a Rolls-Royce unit compared to a standard nuclear power station? So Rolls-Royce say that once the production line is up and running and everything's humming along and they've got all this practice and they've perfected all the mass production techniques and so on, their target is about £1.8 billion for a single one of their SMRs. And the latest figures for the cost of Hinkley Point C, I think, are somewhere north of £20 billion. But I think you have to be a bit careful with these figures. You know, when Hinkley was first being thought of when the deal was signed, no one then expected it to cost £20 billion. And the whole history of nuclear power is basically a history of big cost overruns. So I think whether this £1.8 billion estimate is actually what you'd end up paying, I think very much remains to be seen. Tim, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Alok. Joining me again to put all of this new nuclear technology into context is Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. So Hal, we just heard from our colleague Tim there about small modular reactors. I mean, that really is very cutting edge technology, something that might not see the light of day in the field for a decade or more. 
Whereas Hinkley Point C, which you took us on a tour of, that one is adopting the very latest version of the more traditional nuclear fission technology. How do you see small modular reactors versus something like Hinkley Point C? How do they sort of balance up against each other? I see small modular reactors as an excellent idea, very sensible. But I sort of think about it in the same way as I think about solar, wind and batteries. There are many different ideas to build a zero carbon electricity generation and distribution system. Small modular reactors at this point, they are mostly a concept. There are some small pilots, but only the kind of nuclear fission technologies that we saw at Hinkley C, they're the only thing that we know we could do. And so I think we need to have them all in the mix. And this is your standard argument, really, with the energy technologies approach to climate change. There's no one thing that's going to solve the whole problem. I think small modular reactors are absolutely one of those avenues we should be pursuing. Do you think that the idea of small modular reactors cut against the standardization that you talked about with Hinkley Point C? You know, if Sarah and her team can make the construction of standard nuclear reactors more modular, is that just turns into a spectrum um, towards when you're making smaller modular reactors? I, I think they feed into each other. And, and I actually think it's a reason that the construction of things like Hinkley and Sizewell really ought to continue so that construction teams can keep their hand in. Building a small modular reactor, I mean, the name is a little bit misleading. They're still very serious construction projects. And my understanding is that teams like Sarah are going to have things to tell, things to help teams that are going to build small modular reactors with. And it may even be that the two can feed into each other and sort of lower each other's costs in a way. Because in both cases, you want to make copies of the thing. You want them to be standardized. You want to drive the costs down. And if you don't have an active practice in a country of building nuclear power plants, I don't see how you're suddenly just going to start building small modular reactors cheaply either, to be honest. Earlier on, you told us about the decline of nuclear power in the recent decades. What role do you think nuclear should play? Um, as many governments out there are trying to hit what they call net zero targets, you know, to make sure overall their carbon emissions, their greenhouse gas emissions are zero. How important is nuclear in that sort of world? Well, probably the way to think about this is to understand that there's kind of different demands on electricity grids. And probably the best role for nuclear is supplying what's known as baseload. That is the electricity demand that always exists. You never go below baseload. Baseload is always required. And then what happens during the day, you know, the classic thing is the halftime of the football game when everyone in England turns their kettle on. Those are spikes that can be supplied through different technologies. And the, the good thing about nuclear is that it's consistent and that it's pumping out electricity, rain or shine. Uh, the bad thing about it is you can't ramp it up or down, really. You can't peak it, so you can't meet those peaks of demand, but you can meet the baseload and you can meet the baseload in a zero carbon way. And what about the current geopolitical situation? Do you think the appetite for nuclear is picking up given the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sort of compromising of energy supplies from Russia? It is already picking up, undoubtedly. There have been numerous announcements. And it was already kind of in the wind before the invasion. The invasion has just catalyzed something that was already happening and made it go faster. Uh, the Netherlands, France, Czechia, a, a bunch of European countries have announced plans to build new nuclear power plants. And undeniably, the, the view of nuclear power has shifted as a result of the geopolitical 
need to get off Russian oil and gas. And nuclear is one of the things that can help you do that. And so inherently, there's a huge amount more interest in it now than there was two months ago. What about timescales? I mean, Britain has recently said that it wants to build something like eight new reactors uh, as fast as possible. France has declared that it wants to build more reactors. You've mentioned a few as well. You know, it's clear that people want there to be a new nuclear wave across Europe, at least. But can people build these things fast enough to deal with, for example, the climate change crisis? So the way I think about this is that your first pass answer to that is no. If we're going to solve all of the electricity supply needs in a zero carbon way in time to not warm the planet by 1.5 degrees by the end of the century, nuclear power is not your option. It's not, you can't build it fast enough. Even under the best case scenario, you can't build it fast enough. But then when you bring in baseload, the idea that you don't need to meet all electricity supply with nuclear, you just need to meet a bit of it, call it 20% maybe, then you bring in the fact that there's some hopeful signs that the world might get better at building these things, build them a little faster, build them a little cheaper. But it's not the kind of problem where if we don't hit our target, if we don't do it on time, we're going to give up. We're going to want to go even faster if we don't do it on time. And so when you think about it like that, I think nuclear power has a role to play. It seems to be important to have it on the table, doesn't it? Given the length of time it takes to build, and even if that gets improved and if it becomes cheaper, you're not going to be able to switch these things on overnight. So it seems to be that it would be silly not to have it on the table in, in the coming decades. Um, let, let's summarise then. What, what do you think the next steps are if the world wants to have this new age of nuclear power? What, what needs to happen next? Well, maybe the most important thing is to try and change the way that publics think about nuclear power you know, to really hammer home that while, yes, there is this big downside risk of a nuclear meltdown and a catastrophe, that exists, it's real, we shouldn't not talk about it, pretend it's not real. But the fossil options will kill more people. Their contribution to climate change will kill more people. Other than that, the most important thing about building nuclear power plants is actually the financing. That's why what Sarah's doing at Hinkley is so important. And so I think governments can come up with financing policies that can basically take some of the risk and socialise that risk. And in the UK, this is going to happen through a model called RAB, Regulated Asset Base, which basically means that consumers will be paying for the construction of the next nuclear power plant on their electricity bills from the very beginning of construction, rather than the company that's building it, taking on some of the risk onto the public. And the point is that the discussion about risk needs to then feed into different policies that, that spread the risk around in different ways in order to make it possible to build these gigantic, useful objects that are nuclear power plants. Hal Hodson, thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me, Alec. Thanks also to Sarah Williamson and The Economist, Tim Cross. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read all of Hal and Tim's reporting on nuclear power in The Economist. Tim's piece on small modular reactors is already out, and Hal's essay on the nuclear power industry will be out soon. Believe me, there's a lot more to come on this topic. To read all of that, get your best introductory subscription rate for The Economist by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. 
The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.